Well, Lord our God in heaven, we worship you this day as the king of all the universe. And we ask, Father, that now in this brief time when we um, prepare for your supper, by meditating upon your word, we ask that you would grant us grace to understand this difficult passage. We ask that you would grant us grace. I pray that you would give me grace, Lord, as your uh, pastor of this church, that you would grant me the grace I need to explain this passage in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me a moment. James 2, 14 through 28. If you've never read these verses before, let me just tell you this. These are some of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. Very controversial. They're misunderstood. And my goal today is to make it... um, what seems as if there's some problems in this text, there really aren't. And that's really what my ministry is, is explaining the Word of God. I don't come up with new stuff. I'm not a prophet, a pastor, a preacher. Explains what's already been given. And what we have here is James, the Lord's half-brother, 12 years after the resurrection or so, telling us something that doesn't ring like Protestantism, does it? <laughs> What do we believe as Protestants? Justification by faith. Salvation by grace alone. Especially we who are conservative Presbyterians. Those those are pillars of Protestant Reformation. And hundreds, if not thousands of people, literally went to the stake and were burned because they said justification by faith. Salvation by grace alone. Take him away. Burn him alive. No joke. Just for saying what we believe here in this church 400 years ago, 500 years ago, you easily could have been taken out into the woods. I know. They would have done it right in the public square. They would have taken you downtown and literally light you up. So, when we come to James and he seems to be saying something different, we do well to step back and pause. Now, the issue at hand is this. James is a pastor. And James' book, as I've been telling you every week, is extremely practical. James has no real desire to deal with heavy philosophy or heavy theology. He wants the people who are dispersed, who are not immediately under his care in Jerusalem. They've been dispersed. Beginning of the book, the dispersion. He wants them to live out their faith. He wants them, as I cutely titled the sermon, the proof of the pudding. He wants to see some evidence of their faith. He's demanding through the Holy Spirit that evidence be provided that they indeed have true saving faith. And the controversy comes up between, well, that's not what Paul says. Paul is always talking about things like this, that by works of the law, 
No man, no person shall be justified in God's sight because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, at first blush, when we hear Paul say things like that, or we read the book of Galatians, or certain parts of the book of Romans, they seem to contradict James. Now, what's interesting is that James wrote before Paul. He wrote before Paul. And James, in the early church, had more authority than Paul, even though he didn't press it that much. I mean, after all, James is the Lord's half-brother. Now, think about that. If you were the Lord's half-brother, is that a card that maybe you play? James doesn't. James comes across as a very humble man. He calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, hey, the man was my half-brother. I'm a bondservant, literally a slave of him, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Doesn't, doesn't play the, the brother card. Here's the, here's the easy way to solve this. When you read the book of James, do you see anything about the Mosaic Commandments? It doesn't mention circumcision. Now, we just read in the book of Exodus some very scary stuff, did we not? What did it say in that little passage from Exodus? If you even kindle a fire on the Sabbath at that time, what was the punishment? Be put to death. Kindle a fire on the Sabbath. Be put to death. That's very, very scary. And as Exodus transitions into Leviticus, we will get the, the, the Mosaic Law in the most minute detail. And here's what we have to do. We have to understand, now I mentioned this last week, that the law is of one piece. It has many parts, but it's of one piece. Now, to understand James, this passage in James, we have to unpack the law and realize that there are three basic categories of the law in the Old Testament. And here they are. One, the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, the system of the priests wearing a specific thing. The high priest was not allowed to come up with his own suit of clothes. He couldn't go to the tailor and say, you know what, I'd like that three-piece. He had, it was prescribed to him exactly what he was to wear. It was prescribed to him exactly what he was to say during certain services. It was prescribed to him exactly when he should do it. No human input whatsoever. The ceremonies. Now, the other aspect you have is the what we call the judicial aspect of the law. That's the penalties. The death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. Judicial penalties. Ju judicial system in the Old Testament is, as I've told you before, extremely simple. If you commit some type of monetary crime, you don't go to prison. You pay a very steep fine. Four or five times the amount. So if someone were to steal $100 from you and be convicted, they wouldn't owe the state any money. They owe you money. Four or $500. The stockbroker does something funny with the money and $2 million disappear? No problem. Now you owe $8 million or $10 million depending on the crime. Very, very 
assured way of stopping large monetary crimes. The other penalty was some type of physical punishment. That's where we get the eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And the purpose of that, that's called the lex talionis, the law of the talon. The, the purpose of that wasn't to be barbaric. The purpose of the eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is so that some people wouldn't go over and above the law. Because you know there's some people that if you take a finger, they want to take your head. Right? What do we say? The punishment has to fit the crime. That's what that's talking about. So if you do something to someone and they lose a hand, that person and his or her family can't say, you know what, we want your whole arm. We'll start from the shoulder. And this is literally. Can't do that. Or better yet, you took both of my brother's hands. We're going to run you through with arrows. Can't do that. You lost an eye. The other fellow loses an eye. Tit for tat, so to speak. That's the judicial law. The ceremonial law is gone. That table. You see that table behind me? It's a very simple table. Simple but elegant. That table represents the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. That table represents the entire dismantling and outdating of the sacrificial system. It's all gone. Book of Hebrews makes that clear. The, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of those ceremonies, all those, those, those mind-numbing details, they, they had a purpose. They were to separate the Israelites from their neighbors. And they were also to, to literally make the Jews realize that they couldn't be saved by keeping the law because there just were too many laws to keep. If you only have one law to keep, you might have a shot. If you only have ten, that ten's harder, isn't it? You have over 600. You're, you're, it, it's over. That's what the sacrifices were to remind the people. Over and over and over again, I've got to bring a goat down there. I've got to bring a calf down there. Will this ever stop? Yes. It stopped at Calvary. So, the ceremonial law is done. The judicial law, and that's a little bit more controversial. The third aspect of the law is what we call the moral law. And that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments, I hope. Thou shalt not steal is never outdated. <laughs> Thou shalt not commit adultery is never outdated. Honor thy father and thy mother doesn't have an expiration date. Keep all the Sabbath day, and that doesn't have an expiration date either. But the judicial penalty has already been exacted on the back of Christ for our sins. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or thy neighbor's wife. Doesn't go out of style. Those are eternal and what they represent. James, and here's where this is a simple solution. James is talking about the moral law. That's clear from what he says. Paul, when Paul says that no flesh shall be justified in his sight by works of the law, he's talking about the ceremonies. Because whenever Paul talked about those things, he was dealing with a particular controversy. In the book of Galatians, okay, which is where this doctrine starts, the 
the converts in Galatia weren't Jews. And people from Jerusalem, from the Pharisaic party, followed Paul around. And they told, they, they, after he left town, they would tell the people, you know what, Paul's, Paul's a Johnny come lately. And you're right, Jesus is the Messiah, but gentlemen, line up because we have to circumcise you. That's ceremonial law. Jesus is the Messiah, we believe that, but you've got to get rid of those pigs. There's no swine. You have to keep the law of Moses. Now in Acts chapter 15, that's when they hold the first general assembly. They heard the first general assembly, the first big presbytery meeting of the early church, Acts 15, to decide this issue. And they say, Gentiles don't have to keep the law. Not the ceremonial law. The moral law we have to keep. And that's what James is getting at here. Paul was concerned that the ceremonies were being pressed upon people. And his argument was, hey, we're Jews and we didn't keep the ceremonies. So who are we to tell them that they have to keep the ceremonies? We didn't even do it right. And by the way, Christ fulfilled the whole thing. But Paul never says it's okay to commit adultery. Paul never says it's okay to steal. Paul never says it's okay to worship anybody but Yahweh. Paul never says it's okay to worship Yahweh through statues. And if you go to a church and there's statues around, put your antenna up. It's dangerous. It's second commandment stuff. You go to a church and you see people bowing down to crosses, be very careful. Cross is a symbol, but it's not an idol. James isn't worried about circumcision. He's not worried about the sacrifices. He's he's worried about how we treat each other. And Paul was worried about that as well. And this situation that James is coming up here was most likely a perversion of Paul's faith. Easy believism, cheap grace. Hey, I'm saved by faith. I don't have to do anything. Because if I do something, then I'm adding to my... my, How can I add to God's grace? God's justified me in his sight. James is using language differently than Paul. Paul, When Paul uses the word justification, he's simply talking about God declaring us righteous in his court. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about the ceremonial law almost always. When James is talking about justification, he's talking about us being vindicated in the public realm. About showing the proof of the pudding. And Paul talks about that kind of stuff as well. There is no controversy. Paul is the one who said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do you do that? By obeying God's law. By not stealing. Paul's the one who said, if a man won't work, he does not eat. Paul is the one who said, if you're a thief and you're converted, stop stealing. Now you have to get a job. Moral law. The moral law is forever. And James's passage here isn't hard to understand. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Not because that faith can't save him. Because we don't say that we're saved by faith. We say, we say we're saved by grace. Through faith. 
Faith is nothing more than the instrument by which God justifies us. But, you know what? You could believe, we believe in all kinds of stuff, but it doesn't save us. It's only the grace of God that saves us. Paul tells us in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Protestants have those verses memorized, but they they don't go one verse further. Paul says this, For, or because, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. So here's how you live out your Christian life, brothers and sisters. It's almost like a treasure hunt. God has prepared these good works for you to do. Your job is to go find them. He's prepared them, prepared them in advance for us to do. Our job is to find them. And you know what? You don't have to look very far. They're all around you. And in James's day, these issues are real. What does he say? If a, if, if a, if a fellow Christian comes to them and they're literally naked and destitute of daily food, they're not just having a hard time. They're starving to death. They're going to die from the elements because they don't have any clothes. This is a reality in the ancient world. You know what? It still is a reality in the modern world. It's just not necessarily a reality. Praise God and thank Him for it in our neighborhoods. In our society, if you don't have clothes, you can find them. In our society, if you don't have food, you can get it. Either through the state or through the church. You can get it. There are parts in the world where if you don't have food, you can't go anywhere to get it. And the lesson that we have to learn in the Western church is that, okay, there's no starving people in our neighborhood. But there's Christians around the world who literally don't, they're going to die today just because they don't have any food. You know, we use that word starving in a bad way. I'm starving. Or then we say, I'm starving to death. Like, no, what we usually mean is, hey, I missed lunch and I didn't get a big breakfast. And boy, I am really, it's three o'clock, I'm really hungry. You know, I need a Snickers fix because my blood sugar is dropping. Starving to death means what it says. Literally. And some of our Christian brothers and sisters, they're, 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 they, they have nothing. I was watching a show, um, a movie, um, my son the other day and it showed a um, it showed a, a slum type of area in Brazil. I said, look at that. I paused it. I said, people live like that. I said, you see that? You see how crowded it is? And he said, do you think it smells? I'm like, I guarantee you it does. I said, they're little shanties. They live like that. And I said, and the lesson you need to learn is you need to be thankful that you have a nice place to live. You need to be thankful that you live in a country where you can go to school. There's, you know, don't complain about school because there's millions of kids in this neighborhood that are never going to learn to read and write. James is telling us that if we come across somebody like that and we just tell them, have a nice day, I'll pray for you. What James is flat out saying is, is that you're not saved. 
But if you have that kind of an attitude, if you're that cold-hearted, if you're that callous, then forget about it. You don't have faith. You see, James is very concerned about faith, just as Paul is. James, just as Paul does, wants to see the evidence. Hopefully none of us would ever be this callous. But we might be callous in smaller ways. James makes this very clear argument. Verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26 at the end. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He uses this phrase three times in the beginning, the middle, and the end of the section, we do well to pay attention to it. He's giving us a linguistic clue. Faith without evidence of it, faith without works, faith that doesn't have works that follow it is dead. See, now here's the issue. There are some Christian denominations that teach that the works have to come before the justification. In other words, you do this, you do that, and then, and only then, God will accept you. Now, you have, they all say you have to have faith, but you have to have works and faith together in order to be justified. And we say, no, 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 you've got that backward. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're declared righteous in God's court. He makes you brand new, and then the works follow the faith. They follow in the train of the faith. When you hear people start to say language like, I hope I'm good enough to heaven, and you need to tell them immediately, you're not. And neither am I. There's only one person who's ever walked the planet who's ever good enough to inherit eternal life. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who kept the law of God. James is pointing out that if we don't show the evidences of a true and lively faith that the faith isn't there and we are self-deceived. He's very concerned, remember we pointed out earlier, he's very concerned with people deceiving themselves that they're actually in the faith when they're not. Let me tell you this very scarily. There are millions of people in the world who think they, they might be Christians in name only, they might have been baptized, they might have been members of a role in a church. But remember, Jesus tells that, that scary, terrifying parable. About, the, about some people who actually healed the sick and raised the dead. Performed all kinds of miracles in his name. And what does he say in the parable? He says, I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. That's scary because those people were actually doing big, mighty works allegedly in the name of Jesus. You would think that they had faith. Now those of us who aren't doing anything in the name of Jesus, need to be doubly, doubly afraid. The scriptures tell us to make our calling and election sure. We need to be consistently looking into our lives and looking in the mirror and saying, is that faith there? Now this isn't a call for morbid introspection, especially in relation to this table. Okay, I fence the table. I tell you, if you're living in some type of heinous sin, you know, or if you don't think you're a Christian, let the elements pass. 
But I know of people, not in this church, who haven't taken the Lord's Supper in decades because they don't feel as if they're worthy. And the whole point of the table is, yes, you're not. The only prerequisite to coming to the table is to acknowledge that you're not worthy of taking the elements. We'll never be worthy enough. That's why he died. God demands perfection. None of us do it. He did. We get there by trusting that his works are given to us. But James wants to see that, hey, this has happened. You believe this. Now where's the evidence of this? Where's the thankfulness for this? If Jesus did this for you, then, hey, someone's naked at your doorstep. Bring them in and give them clothes. And remember, this is 2,000 years ago. This is a real situation. Now, imagine if this actually occurred in your neighborhood. There was some absolutely homeless and destitute person. And Mr. and Mrs. X are high and mighty members of the church, founding members of the church in the neighborhood. And this, this poor person comes to the door begging for, hey, I need a winter coat. It's freezing out here. I need a winter coat. I'm hungry. Can I, have, can I have some food? And they, this person just says, here, you know, I'll pray for you. What would you think of those Mr. and Mrs. X? Would you think that their faith was real and genuine? No. And you'd have every right not to because that's what James is saying. And then James gives these historical examples. Abraham is justified. He believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. Later, six, seven chapters later, comes Isaac. Right? And what does James say? This is important. Verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. The word perfect simply means completed. In other words, you believe, great, show me. Show me that you believe that Isaac is the son of promise. Remember, Isaac was his chosen son. And God said, show me that you believe that Isaac is the one who is going to bring the promise. Remember, God promised Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. Oh, but by the way, you don't have any children yet. Hmm. Problem. And you're getting old. I'm going to give you a son. And through Isaac, your seed shall be named. So you see, God put him to the test and said, I promised you that the promise is going to be fulfilled through Isaac. But by the way, you need to kill him on Mount Moriah. Show me. And Abraham did it. And when we read the passage, we realize if we read between the lines, he's doing it with a heavy heart. He's moving really slow. He's moving very slow. He must, have, he, must have, he must have packed those donkeys and made that wood fire very, very slowly. I'm sure he didn't rush through it. And God provided what? A ram. A sacrificial animal to substitute Isaac. That ram was prophetically significant for Calvary. And that's what this table 
Brothers and sisters, James' message is very simple. If we believe, we need to look after those who can't look after themselves. If we believe, then we need to show evidences of a true and lively faith. And if those evidences aren't there, if our hearts are so cold and so callous that we look down upon those who are less blessed than we are, then we need to seriously question if our faith is genuine. Because there's nothing more unbecoming of the name Christian than someone who has no mercy or compassion for those who are less blessed. Let us always remember that what we've been giving in light of Thanksgiving is a gift. We give thanks for what's been given to us. And if somebody else hasn't been given the gifts that we have, then we need to share that gifts with them. Especially if we're talking about the basic necessities of life. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. May none of us ever, ever have a dead faith. Would you pray with Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would help us to literally put to death the deeds of the flesh and live out our faith in a manner which is glorious to your name. In your Son's precious name we ask this blessing.